This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Delighted to have back with us next Alyssa Rapp, CEO of Surgical Solutions, joining us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. And Alyssa, you've been so good to keep us up to date on what's going on really on the front lines of this pandemic crisis, because you've got workers on those front lines at hospitals, healthcare facilities. So I guess I would just start there. What are you hearing? Like, what's the anecdotal evidence and the feel that that you're getting as you talk to your folks? Well, Jason and Carol, it's a pleasure to be back here with you today. And interestingly, the feel on the ground today, September 9th, is very different from when you and I last spoke. We are not today seeing COVID dominating our internal headlines uh, in terms of what our ground game is uh, at these hospital locations. We operate in 39 hospitals across nine states and have big hubs of essential workers in New York City, Houston, Tennessee, Louisiana, and Kentucky. And even in Houston, where there had been a major flare-up in the last six weeks, uh, things seem to be more under control from a healthcare standpoint. And what's dominating internal conversations is not uh, the surge in COVID, uh, the ongoing surge in COVID in healthcare environments, but really the surge of cases that had been canceled and how do we continue to staff all of that extra volume that continues to be rescheduled as a result of the first major COVID wave. Alyssa, what have we learned? What have we learned along the way? I think we've learned a couple of really important things, Carol. First of all, I think we've learned that the health systems with great strategic partners, obviously uh, Surgical Solutions being one of them, but many others as well, that can really lean on partners to risk share in terms of staffing, in terms of equipment, in terms of repairs. There's so many things that hospitals need to do to keep functioning at maximum efficiency. And if all of that burden rests on them and them alone, Staffing up and down and expanding services up and down is a lot to bear in addition to the managing and focus on on patient care. But those with great strategic partners that can flex up and flex down, I think, have had an easier time um, adapting to this new normal. And I also think that it's a really, really, really complex time not knowing what's to come. And so those who are stockpiling PPE or those who are making sure people have time off now. So clinician burnout isn't as big of a factor one or two months from now when the flu season is upon us and and the, and the potential resurgence of COVID upon us is, I think, important to remember. Well, I just think even what everybody learned from New York Metro of just, you know, getting ventilators from California to come this way, like just even that kind of idea to know that somebody else has your back a little bit or that equipment totally. around the country could be shared. I mean, talk about taking some stress off you, right? No, totally. The the degree that there's more collaboration, I think, is crucial. And I also heard Dr. Fauci recently discuss to the Economic Club of Chicago that all decisions about reopening must be made locally. So my children are eight and five and back in school in a hybrid environment, mornings, Zoom, afternoons, uh, eight student classrooms in socially distant contexts with masks. And I know other districts with higher incidences are in full lockdown and yet others in, in Europe 
my cousins over there, their children are back in school even without masks. So I think it really has to be made, continue to be made on a local level, as, as Dr. Fauci recommended. So if you don't mind me being so bold, let, let me ask you, as a parent and as someone who knows mm-hmm. this so well, this story so holistically, like what do you make of back to school so far? I'm, we're very blessed to be in a wonderful public school district where our children are each at desks with shields. Our, uh, our educators were provided 70 extra virtual training sessions this summer. So we are in an unusually positive position of feeling like all of the extra safety precautions that could be taken are. I have to attest every morning on an app called Crisis Go, our children's temperature and health and wellness to attend that day. It's daily or they're not admitted in. So I'm seeing it being handled as best in class as it could be. I understand if that's not the realities of one school district or of one's personal circumstance, that it might not be um, it, going back in a hybrid context might not be as comfortable for others. But on the same time, I have most of my essential workers are staying put in their hospitals and their geolocations, but I still have 10 essential workers who are starting to fly around the country again. Yeah. And so, you know, at some point, at some point, one has to be very practical and careful and dip their toe back in. Uh, into more free movement, but I don't feel like we're entirely there yet. And frankly, the hybrid model is probably as comfortable as I am right now in terms of freedom of movement. So what do you think realistically, since you've had a front seat to all of this, Alyssa, uh, in terms of the vaccination talk and, and finding of a vaccine and when it really reaches out to the masses, is it an early 2021 story? Is it a mid-2021 story? Realistically, you've got a, you run an organization, a huge organization. Um, what's your planning on this? So when I heard the CEO of Merck talk about this recently, uh, Mr. Kenneth Frazier, he was saying it was not a question of when a vaccine would come out, but its efficacy. So I believe there will be vaccines uh, in spite of stumbles from the vaccination standpoint. As of yesterday, I read in the news, I think there will be a vaccine by the end of the year. What I cannot attest because I'm not close enough to it is if it will be 60 or 90 percent efficacy. And the efficacy will, to me, determine the degree to which we can broadly reopen. That is such a crucial point. Jason, I know it's something we talk about. You're right. I mean, something that's only 50 percent efficacy is not necessarily what we need right now, Alyssa. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, no, big questions, big questions, I feel like. And, you know, Carol, you and I almost joke about this, like the next two weeks are going to be critical. The next month is going to be critical. (laughs) I do think the next month is going to be critical. I feel like once we get to the beginning of October and certainly into October, we're going to have a better sense. It's a little colder, right? Right. We're going to have a... And, and kids back to school, mm-hmm. you know, like Alyssa's and others, um, you know, tr- starting to get a feel for what's working and what's not. Alyssa Rapp, really good to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Chief Executive talk- Officer. Sorry, I'm interrupting you a lot. <laughs> She's the CEO of Surgical <laughs> Solutions. She joined us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Carol. Uh, this half hour, we've been really looking at the virus from a couple of different angles. We just talked with the CEO of Surgical Solutions. Right now, we've got to address what is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg, and it talks about one of the most promising coronavirus vaccines stumbling a little bit. AstraZeneca is what we're talking about. So let's get into it with our Bloomberg News health reporter, Michelle Cortez. She's on the phone from Minneapolis. Michelle, Jason and I always look forward to kind of setting the record straight when it comes to the vaccine and the virus. So... Tell us what this means, this stumble, because what I've been reading is that you're going to have delays when you create a vaccine like this. That's just a normal part of the process. Carol, you're exactly right. It's kind of astonishing how quickly and smoothly everything has gotten to this point. We have more than two dozen vaccines in clinical trials, 
for a virus that we didn't even know existed, that probably didn't even exist a year ago. So that is astonishing. And as you point out, there are normally hurdles and problems that come up. The way this one has been coming out is a little bit um, unsettling, to say the least. So we heard yesterday that AstraZeneca had paused its trial. They're saying that it's a very normal thing, that it happens when there's an unexplained illness. But throughout the day today and late last night, some news was trickling out about the condition that we're actually looking at. It's a spinal cord condition called uh, transverse myelitis, causes inflammation in the spinal cord, can lead to paralysis. And it is something that's worrisome. And I guess it's also a reminder, Michelle, at just how heightened all of this is and how heightened all of us are. We are we are both hopeful, but I dare say feeling almost a little bit desperate because our very way of life has, has been changed. We've seen tens and tens and tens of thousands of people die just in the United States. And it, there's a sense of urgency that I don't know we've ever collectively felt, certainly in my lifetime. I would agree with that. But also there is a concern here, of course, that that there's belief that a vaccine is going to bring us back to normal. Right. But we do have an issue with um, with vaccine hesitancy and skepticism yes. in the U.S. So the idea that, that some of this information is coming out not so smoothly is a little bit is a little bit concerning. Also, we did learn that there had been an earlier incident as well where they temporarily paused the trial and didn't disclose that where they, they had similar symptoms of, of you know, t- paralysis type issues. And it turned out that the patient had multiple sclerosis and they determined that it wasn't related to the vaccination, although the person had gotten the vaccination. We're not exactly sure why MS develops. So with two with two potential ties to a neurological condition, you know, at some point people are going to be making a decision whether they're going to participate in a clinical trial, which clinical trial. And then when we get done, hopefully we'll have more than one option. Which one are you going to pick? Yeah, exactly. Well, there are different types of vaccines, and I've been trying to kind of brush up on it. I'm not an expert, but in terms of the creation of vaccines, right, there's different ways of doing it. And I do wonder, are certain vaccines potentially going to be safer than others? There are different ways to go about doing this. And it's really, again, astonishing the breadth of approaches that we have already that have emerged when it comes to coronavirus. There is some companies, there are some companies who are building off standard models that we already have, like seasonal influenza. Mm-hmm. And they're just using a different you know, ingredient, basically, in their vaccine. So they're hoping to provoke an immune system response to coronavirus instead of to influenza. Does that make when it safer, look- Michelle, or not necessarily? Well, I think that there's two ways to think about it. You have the platform, the way that you're going about doing it. And so for influenza, it's been given to, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people over over decades and decades, right? So the platform is a known platform. Then you're putting in a different uh, portion of the virus, yeah. you know, maybe the spike protein or something else. And so it's possible that the body would respond adversely to what you're putting into it. But the platform itself should be safe. Whether or not it's going to be effective is is unknown. Right. But then there's completely novel ways, like what AstraZeneca is doing. It's it's not currently used in any approved vaccine. 
same as Moderna. They yeah. Their approach is totally novel and different from AstraZeneca's. J&J is working on a similar thing, but also some uh, more conventional approaches. So there is a wide variety. There is a wide variety. So you, you are our Google on the virus. We could, either, we could <laughs> exactly. go to Google and, you know, look for things, or we could just bring you in, which yeah, is what we like exactly. to do. <laughs> which is much, I, I feel like, much more helpful and much more enjoyable for us, to be honest. Yes. Uh, leave the Googling to the uh, chart of the day. All right, Michelle Cortez, thank you so much. Health science and medical technology reporter for Bloomberg, our Google and our guru. Uh, find her on Twitter at Faye Cortez. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, this was a story that jumped out at many of us when it hit the terminal this morning. Just the sort of story that I feel like you sort of want to sink your teeth into. It's the sort of thing that makes you a little bit smarter when you're talking about the Fed because we go so deep at Bloomberg about the mechanics and all the different things. But at the end of the day, so much of it is about the man or the woman at yeah. the top. And Jay Powell, he's been a little bit of an enigma, I have to say, and obviously a man in the midst of a massive crisis. So what is he really all about? We've got the guy who's got the answers, Rich Miller, economics reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from D.C. Rich, congrats on this story. I love it. Thank uh, you very much. You, you talk about Jay Powell channeling Alan Greenspan, and honestly, you had me there, and then you just took it away. So take it away here. Tell us what you, what you surmise in this story. Well, Alan Greenspan uh, made his reputation as the sort of uh, monetary maestro by, by following a very flexible policy stance and being reading the tea leaves of the economy and not uh, uh, reacting rigidly to whatever economic models might say. And that's, that's, the, that's the approach that uh, Jerome Powell uh, seems to be taking, and that's the approach he laid, laid out um, and in this virtual Jackson Hole conference recently. For example, okay, they say we're gonna, we, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, we want to shoot for inflation that will average 2% over time, and we're willing to temporarily allow inflation to rise above 2% to achieve that. But he keeps it all a bit fuzzy, like Greenspan. We're not saying average over what period of time. We're not saying how much of an overshoot we might. It's all very flexible, and that's uh, and that's the kind of style that uh, Greenspan uh, used during his 20 years atop the Fed. And the the academic, uh, two academic, more academically trained economists who preceded Powell. Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke were, were much more attuned to, you know, what are the economic models telling mm-hmm. us? What, 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 you know, what, you know, what, 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 what is the past relationships that we see in these very complex mo- models that the Fed has telling us about how the economy is going to react? So well, it's kind of a, a different change in approach. Well, bingo. And this is what I love in your story. There's so many moving parts to it that I love. First of all, that you reminded us that Greenspan never publicly embraced a numerical target for inflation. I think we've forgotten, right? Because we've been so obsessed, thanks to Bernanke, you know, mm-hmm. and, and others right. that we right. this two percent target. But what's interesting is you you point out, Rich, that even you say the most theoretically rigorous economists would probably agree that the Fed needs to be nimble in battling the coronavirus crisis, given how uncertain the outlook is. 
Economic models built on past relationships are of limited value in analyzing a once-in-a-century catastrophe. We don't have a playbook, really, on this. No, we, we don't. And, uh, uh, I mean, you can't throw the models completely out the window, right? I mean, you right. got to yeah, – but, 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 but you're right. You, you know, uh, we, we just don't have a playbook. And, uh, you know, you hate to say, well, the Fed is winging it a little bit, right, because that's a little scary. But, but it is, right? I mean, they rolled out, like, uh, program, program lending facility after lending facility there in March – just desperately trying to get the markets to stabilize. You know, one didn't work. We'll get another one. We're going, you know, we'll go another one. We'll go another one. You know, and and, and you know, finally they've gotten the markets to stabilize. Now, now the hope is let's let's try to get the economy recovered. But um, yeah, it is winging it because you know right. we're all kind of winging it as we stay at home, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that if there is one commonality among we're all of us, Rich, it. that is very true, professionally and personally. That's all happening. Going on my T-shirt every- list. Day, yeah, we're all winging it. So, you know, Rich, you said something I think really important that that I want to dig into a little bit, which is about Jay Powell's background. I mean, he is of the finance world, not of right. the academic world, right. and that seems to be playing through pretty markedly in his tenure. Would you agree? Yeah, def- definitely. I, I think you hit, a, you hit a really good point, Jason. That you know, th- this is a guy here here to fortune at private equity at Carlisle, right? And so he, he knows, you know, markets. He knows, you know, uh, how to really dig into a company balance sheet. That it, he's not like a guy who, you know, who's familiar with these giant macroeconomic models. He doesn't have a, you know, he's a lawyer by training. He doesn't have, unlike Bernanke and Yellen, he doesn't have a PhD from a, you know, really prestigious university. And so that informs him, you know, he's he, he that informs his view. And also, I think. Uh, He's also aware, and this was kind of sort of uh, Greenspan's Achilles' heel. He's also aware there are risks here of you know blowing up asset bubbles. Right? Yeah. We've seen the stock market. Stock market now bounced back really nicely today. Um, but you know, uh, Greenspan, his probably biggest faults were you know the sort of dot com bubble of the you know two thousand one, two thousand, two thousand one, and then. You know, he he left before the housing bubble burst, but he was there while it was bubbling. Yeah, definitely while it was getting well, inflated, that's for sure. Don't you yeah. think about this? This is a guy who, like, he wants to continue to be able to go to those weekend cocktail parties and people <laughs> like, you got this right. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you don't want to be the one who's like, wow, you really screwed it up, Jay, you know, yeah, right. despite all your, you know, experience in investing and so on and so forth. Like, you do, <laughs> don't you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. But though, Powell doesn't strike me as, he's not the cocktail party guy. But right. Uh, all right, all right. Green, Maybe he's playing Green, bridge Green, on the weekend. Greenspan yeah. really enjoy the cocktail party. Yeah, that's true. There Probably you go. Yeah. Rich that's Miller. And where they're different. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, a really smart take. Uh, it's one of those stories that y- you read. And, and again, I feel like we've got a theme uh, sort of emerging in this show of like bringing you some of the best that Bloomberg has to offer today. You know, these are reporters who their depth of knowledge is just unparalleled oh, when it yes. comes to connecting the dots. And I feel like whether we're talking about the vaccine, whether we're talking about an up and coming company like Tesla or whether we're talking about the Fed chair, like being able to understand that context 
context uh, and 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 the institutional history and the personal history uh, is really important. So our thanks to Rich Miller, economics reporter for Bloomberg, joining us at the phone from D.C. Check out that story on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. It's a reminder, too, of how Fed policy evolves or sometimes yes. goes back to something that we were at before. So, uh, yeah, it's a great read. And I agree with you. The depth on uh, his reporting, like so many of our our team, especially when it comes to the Fed, is just uh, fantastic. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, very fair for all of us to say we've had an awful lot on our minds over the past six months, plenty to worry about. In the meantime, the climate crisis continues. So we kind of thought you should know what you have missed during the pandemic. And in a few words, there's a story that's among the most read on the Bloomberg. It's a race against heat and humanity is losing. Um, Sorry for being kind of such a bummer on this Wednesday. Um, Let's get into this, though, with Bloomberg News Sustainability Editor Eric Rostin. He joins us on the phone in Montclair, New Jersey. Eric, good to have you here with us. Uh, Despite, you know, trying to deal with the pandemic and dealing with racial inequality, we definitely have had a full plate. But nonetheless, there's a lot of climate science that we've missed that's been going on around us. There is. There is no shortage of things to think about, uh, whether we're talking about today's news or uh, decadal trends that we see in our climate coverage. And today, in advance of the second ever issue of Bloomberg Greed Magazine, our new quarterly, um, we published two items that may be of interest. Um, the, the, the longer one that uh, is performing uh, really well on the, on the terminal and getting a lot of attention um, is a walk through a uh, sort of an aggregation of all of the heat news alone that we've seen in the last two weeks. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of the opposite of news. We've known for decades that rising temperatures would uh, would bring discomfort and in some cases much worse. Um, and uh, this beautiful uh, walkthrough done by um, our colleagues, uh, mostly in Europe, um, shows what this means both at the global scale down to the micro scale, down to the August 17th uh, uh, reading in, in Death Valley, which hit 130 yeah. degrees. Yeah, it's uh, a, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying there. There's uh, when you when you gather all of these streams together, uh, you can see sort of reality filling in the predictions that we've heard about uh, for for so long, and it's hard, you know, not to um, have some kind of uh, reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's interesting, too, because I think this is now even more top of mind, Eric, as we see these not just the headlines, but the pictures from California and these wildfires that are raging. And and you essentially hear Gavin Newsom, the governor of uh, of California, basically saying, look, folks, you want to see climate change? Here you go. This is what it looks like. And it's a stark reminder once again. I guess my question to you is, are people paying attention? And has this pandemic pushed it um, out of our minds? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple question, I think, with a, a, a difficult answer. Part of me just thinks immediately about just the, the media environment we're in and how you know, over the uh, the internet has has obviously splintered uh, attention, and so so there's there's sort of many smaller news communities than there were when you know there were just the big networks, and um, 
uh, and the big papers through, you know, the through most of the post-war era. Um, other than that, though, they, there are some, some things that are obviously very difficult to ignore, and, and, and California is one of them. Um, uh, people living there, we're, we're hearing from colleagues and friends and family out there uh, that it's it's un, un, conditions unlike they've they've ever seen or experienced because it's already the worst fire season in California history. You know, Eric, I wonder. You know, Jason and I talk a lot about ESG and you know people doing the right thing, especially when there's money that makes sense to do the right thing, whether it's diversity, whether it's the impact on the environment. And I do wonder your story, when you talk about the things that we've missed while we've been, you know, obviously all focusing on the pandemic. I mean, there is a cost to a hotter globe. Um, And we're going to see, you know, here we are dealing with deaths from a pandemic, but you're talking about more heat deaths, you know, as one of the costs. And I don't know whether people realize that it's uh you know i find it useful to sort of uh retreat off into the to the big picture yeah and you know our our economy our the structure of our of our markets uh and and how we we create and build businesses you know these are all things that occurred at a time you know anywhere from 50 to 300 years ago um when we never had to think about the climate we just never had to think about it because it's been the same, uh, as far as we can tell, for like 10,000 years. Right. But now we're, we're taking uh, those systems that were built in a stable climate and trying to see how well they're going to work when, um, when physics is, is changing the, the, the field of play. Um, and we're going to see floated uh, all kinds of measures from uh, investor practices, like you just mentioned, uh, to in some countries, different laws and policies. Uh, it's it's a living experiment. Right. And uh, we're not sure what the next move is. Yeah, a living experiment with very, very serious uh, consequences, depending on what choices we make. All right, Eric Rosson, thank you so much. Sustainability editor for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone. And you can read more stories on climate news, science, and the environment, including the stories we talked about at Bloomberg.com slash green. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Just want to let you know we are keeping an eye on what's going on down in Washington. The president speaking at the White House talking about some potential judicial nominees. He had said earlier in the day that he was going to give some names of potential Supreme Court uh, nominee should there be a vacancy, and presumably should there be a vacancy if he won re-election uh, as well. So we'll keep an eye on that. Obviously, a lot going on in yeah. Washington, and uh, we will take you there if the news warrants. In the meantime, Carol, let's get to that close. Let's get to the drive to the close. 
Let's do it. Let's bring in Hank Smith. He is head of investment strategy at Haverford Trust. They've got roughly $9.3 billion in assets under management based in Radnor, Pennsylvania, and that's where we find Hank on the phone on this Wednesday. Uh, Hank, nice to check in with you again. I am curious, after the selling that we saw for three days and now the bounce back, were you among those buying or advising your clients to buy in today's market ahead of the uh, move up? Carol, uh, nice to be with you, and good afternoon uh, yeah, to you hi. and Jason. Uh, we have been very consistent uh, throughout this, what is it now, five-month bull market, that uh, sell-offs are buying opportunities, and that includes the previous three-day sell-off that we had. And, the, and it's really quite simple. This bull market is being powered by some very, very strong tailwinds, the biggest being monetary stimulus, the greatest amount we've ever seen, Fiscal stimulus, the greatest amount we've ever seen, a dramatically recovering economy uh, off of the worst quarterly uh, economic data. And then finally, uh, we are truly in a TINA environment, meaning there is no alternative. We were in a TINA environment back in 2012-13 when the 10-year was, you know, two and three quarters percent. Well, 10-year now is three-quarters of a percent, so we are really in a TINA environment. And it doesn't mean we won't have headwinds. We certainly will. That will create volatility. But the tailwinds I just described are not going away. So these sell-offs, which are probably overdue, are great entry points for investors. So, Hank, I want to talk to you a little bit about the retail space, because we were talking earlier on in this show about JCPenney uh, apparently doing a deal, this according to both Dow Jones and now Bloomberg, uh, with its lenders and landlords, uh, in this case, Brookfield and Simon, to basically keep JCPenney alive keeping something alive versus thriving are two very different things. And it feels like we've seen both in the midst of this pandemic. And I wonder as an investor, what you make of that and and how you sort of delineate here. Yeah, I think that's the downside of having these super low interest rates for a super low period of time that uh, investors can get away with raising money to keep a company alive that really should be dead and in the real retail space, it's never been more clear. You have the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots are just dying off. And, you know, JCPenney is one. There have been several other bankruptcies. Uh, and the haves are also very clear. Uh, you know, obviously Amazon, but Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, TJ Maxx. Uh, you know, these are companies that uh, are just taking advantage of, of this uh, environment, Look, that, that, this retail story was true going into the pandemic. The pandemic has just accelerated it. Well, what's interesting is it's not just JCPenney taking advantage, right? It's it's you've got, you know, big mall operators, Simon Properties and others saying we've got to keep this alive because that impacts us in a big way. Right. But ultimately, it is the buyer that keeps something alive or causes something to die. And, it, you know, the, the store traffic in, in JCPenney's, Macy's, other mall anchors, um, it just has not been there compared to the retailers that, um, that I mentioned uh, beforehand. All right. And Hank Smith, head of investment strategy for Haverford Trust Company, joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com. 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. 